0: What's up everyone, I'm Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. Welcome back to another episode of Founder's Journal, an entrepreneur's personal diary made public for the world. Before we hop into the episode, I wanted to say thank you for the thousands of messages that I've gotten from listeners since the relaunch of the show just a few months ago. I have responded to all of them at this point. That's what I did for about seven hours of my honeymoon uh, flight home. So if I haven't gotten back to you, your email probably fell through the cracks of my computer. Today, I am trying a new show format. It is a modern business case study where I take an interesting brand, I tell its story, and I share lessons that we can pull out and apply to our businesses as builders. If there is a business you would love to see me do a case study on, shoot me an email at alex at morningbrew.com and let me know what company that is. Now, for today's episode, I am talking about the meteoric rise of the Hoka brand and lessons any builder can learn from it. Let's hop into it. In 2012, the oversized sneaker brand Hoka was doing around $3 million in revenue. And it was bought by Deckers, the owner of Ugg and Teva and a few other brands. And Deckers bought Hoka for a reported million dollars. This was the acquisition of the century, given Hoka crossed the $1 billion annual revenue threshold this past year. I want to talk about its meteoric rise and how a niche French brand broke through to become the fastest growing running sneaker brand in the world. So I first found out about Hoka in 2015. My sister told me about them when I was a senior at the University of Michigan. I, like most people, thought they were ugly and looked like clown shoes, but I always had shin splints when I ran, and so I was down to try anything that could help get rid of them. I tried out the Hoka Clifton model, and they were by far the best shoes that I have ever run on in terms of minimizing pain. Now, fast forward to 2023, I have five different pair of Hoka's, four of which are running shoes, and I actually have a pair of their hiking boots as well. Between wearing my new Mach 5s and my producer mentioning Hoka as a potential business to break down with you all, I knew it was the right time to dive into this story. I don't think people appreciate how large the brand is today and how fast its meteoric rise has been since the pandemic. This past year, Hoka did $1.4 billion in sales. That is up from $3 million in sales, as I mentioned, just 10 years ago and $153 million in sales just five years ago. In 2018, when Hoka did $153 million in revenue, the brand was responsible for less than 10% of Decker's revenues. Now, it accounts for nearly 40%. It's just behind UGG. And Decker's is trading right at its all-time high. The stock is up 70% this year and 375% over the last five years. So the question is, how did Hoka get here? And what about its growth story can you apply to your business? Let's start from the beginning. Hoko was founded in 2009 by former Solomon employees Jean Luc Diar and Nicholas Mermoud. The two co founders met at a ski race in the Swiss Alps a decade earlier, and they eventually decided that they wanted to start a shoe company together because the footwear market was massive, but they viewed sneaker technology as very basic. And the idea was they wanted to create a shoe that had the sensation of riding a wave on a surfboard or floating down a mountain on powder skis, but do that for trail running. And trail running, for those of you that don't know, is a type of running that happens outside on outdoor trails, typically on mountainous trails. So you're either going very vertically up or very vertically down. The first idea for their product was actually a slip-on that you could put Over your shoes, but then over time, it evolved to be a standalone shoe with an oversized sole, the sole that Hoka has become known for. And the idea behind this oversized sole was it mimicked the oversized technology that had been used on things like powder skis or mountain bike wheels. And that brings us to our first lesson. A great product solving a big enough problem over a long enough time frame is a boring formula, but it is the best formula for building a great business. While Hoka is mainstream today, it stuck out like a sore thumb in the early years of the business. The founders were complete contrarians in 2009, creating an oversized running shoe at a time when the prevailing wisdom was to embrace minimalism, allowing a runner to get as close to the concrete as possible. For context, I looked at Google search trends before recording this episode. And between 2009 and 2011 is when searches for finger shoes, if you remember those shoes that creep the hell out of me, they're the shoes that have individual slots for your toes, that is when finger shoes and barefoot running peaked in terms of interest from consumers. On top of that, the shoes at launch were $160, which was 20 to $30 more than typical running shoes in 2009. But Jean-Luc and Nicholas knew that they had built the powder ski of trail running shoes, and they knew that their product was best in class for a very specific niche of ultra runners. This leads to the second lesson, which is that obsessive focus on a passionate core audience is how so many massive businesses create early momentum. Jean-Luc Diar and Nicholas Mermood are their own customers. They have competed in ultra marathons their entire careers, and they knew a shoe that provided more stability and cushion to this specific group of mountain runners would absolutely crush it. And I believe there are two key moments in 2009 and 2010 that allowed Hoka to indoctrinate the U.S ultra running community in the brand. The first moment was when Mermood attended a trade show in December of 2009. He brought with him a bag of prototypes. He had no booth, but it didn't matter because his shoes stuck out like a sore thumb relative to everything else. And at the show, Nicholas met Mark Platches, one of the original owners of Boulder Running Company. And Boulder Running Company, just for context, is a running retailer in Boulder that's very well respected uh, just in the running world. And Mermude asked Placis, who is a physical therapist, and he was the 1993 World Marathon champion, he asked Platchez to do a brief test run in a Hoka prototype. Platchy's immediately liked the concept. He loved running in the shoe. Mermood told him that Hoka had a thousand pairs about to be shipped from a Chinese factory. And based on this short trial running on them, Platchy said that Boulder Running Company would buy as many as the store could get, which wound up being 770 pairs, the majority of Hoka's initial production run. That's the first moment. The second moment was when Nicholas Mermood approached Carl Meltzer, who is arguably one of the best ultra marathons ever. He has won more 100 mile ultra marathons than anybody else, which is crazy because running one 100 mile marathon is insane to have one more than anyone else means you've done an absolutely insane number of these races. And like anyone who sees these clown shoes at first, like when I saw them for the first time in college, Meltzer was skeptical, but he tried them out. And he ended up being shocked by how forgiving the shoes were. So halfway through his run, he was sold. Within three months, Meltzer dropped his sponsor, which at the time was La Sportiva, and he started competing in Hoka's. And Hoka's revitalized his career. By April 2011, he won his first race in a year. Three weeks later, he won a 100-miler in Virginia, followed by a victory at Alabama's 100-mile race in November. And what Meltzer ended up saying is, people thought they looked like clown shoes, but I didn't care. I could float over rocks and not feel anything. Between one of the top running stores in the country and an iconic ultra marathoner being bought in, Hoka established this center of gravity within endurance athletes that became the foundation for their company. I can't stress how important these early champions of the brand within a very tight-knit and passionate community were for the overall trajectory of the business. By the end of 2010, Hoka was on best of running lists. And within a few years, it was estimated that 40 to 60% of ultra runners were wearing Hoka's. After ultra marathoners came triathletes, which Hoka became the most worn shoe ahead of Asics, Nike, and Saucony beginning in 2017. But being loved by niche communities of ultramarathoners and triathletes isn't what gets a brand from $3 million in sales in 2012, which is the year that Decker's acquired Hoka, to $153 million in 2018 and $1.4 billion in fiscal year 2023. Which begs the question, what did Hoka do to accelerate so much over the last five years and how much of that growth is attributable to skill versus luck? Of course, in any business, there's going to be some aspect of both. So let's get luck out of the way first. We're going to take a quick break, but more from Founders Journal when we get back.
1: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at Select Business Merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpresscom card.
0: There are certain trends that have undoubtedly provided tailwind for the Hoka brand. The pandemic placed an emphasis on comfort with healthcare professionals facing incredibly demanding jobs oftentimes on their feet for many hours at a time, as well as many professionals moving to working remote and working from home and being able to default to comfort over appearance in the workplace. On top of that, we just live in this very weird time right now where it feels like the uglier the apparel or the footwear, the more fashionable it's considered by America's elite. You don't have to look any further than... Yeezy foam runners, which are possibly the world's ugliest shoes. They look like Martian shoes, and you can buy them from Amazon for $525. So like any business's success story, luck has played a role in Hoka's rise, but the company has also grown from niche brand for the top 1% of runners in America to mainstream running shoe and, dare I say, fashion symbol because of a few very intentional choices. The first choice is a very slow and methodical approach to revenue growth. Hoka will not enter a new market or a new distribution channel until they know that there is adequate brand awareness or consumer demand. Executives at the company actually turned down the opportunity to sell in Foot Locker before the pandemic because they didn't believe that they had enough brand awareness to capitalize on the opportunity presented by one of the country's largest sneaker chains. And it's the same exact story for Dick's Sporting Goods. In 2000. 2014, Hoka tested a small number of stores and they didn't see enough consumer demand. So they pulled the shoes from Dix's shelves very quickly. They'd only returned to Dix in 2020 when the brand was multiples of its 2014 size and they had enough demand to make the distribution channel worth it. The second choice that they very intentionally made was collaborations with status brands. Since 2019, Hoka has done several limited edition collabs with brands like Outdoor Voices, Cotopaxi, Bodega, and Montclair. And this has killed two birds with one stone. It has positioned Hoka as a more luxury good, which is especially important at a time when Hoka's number one challenge is staving off their competition, all of which have come out with Hoka copycats. If you go to Nike, Adidas, Asics, Saucony's websites now, they all have hoka lookalikes. On top of being positioned as a luxury good, these collabs have also created mainstream brand awareness while catching the attention of celebrities and influencers who now flaunt their hokas as a quasi-status symbol. So we've seen everyone from Harry Styles to Britney Spears to Gwyneth Paltrow flaunting the brand on social. And the third intentional choice is a marketing strategy that skillfully appeals to a wider audience without neglecting their original core customer. Hoka's are sported by grandparents, suburban moms, and doctors now as much as they are by ultra marathoners. And that's largely attributable to the shift in marketing by Hoka over the last few years. Hoka has stayed true to its focus on the core performance runner, largely through continued focus on the product and innovation, as well as selling in specialty retailers and having partnerships with Hoka athletes who are competitive ultra marathoners. But it has also been able to resonate with mass market through opening up distribution in broader retailers like Foot Locker and Dick's, while positioning its social media and marketing campaigns as empowering all humans to move together. I'll also link in the show notes to Fly Humans Fly, which is their new marketing campaign and commercial. So you get a sense of what it looks like for them to market to a broader audience and not just the ultra marathoner. So to pull everything together, Hoka has been able to become a billion-dollar brand and one of Time's 100 most influential companies of 2023 by focusing on creating a truly transformational product that solves a painful problem for a very specific audience, by playing the long game and not trying to grow at all costs, and by inviting in other consumers to the party through intentional partnerships and marketing without forgetting where they started with this very niche, very passionate community. Now, as I think about the future of Hoka, I am left with a very simple question. How will the brand be able to establish itself as a sustaining brand in the performance footwear space when all of its competitors have come out with copycats and when so many other upstart brands like Allbirds, Outdoor Voices, and others have failed to do so? Finally, this was my first business case study in a long time, and I kind of think of it as a modern version of a Harvard Business Review case study that we would do in business school. I would love to hear what you think about it, and if you want more episodes like this, so shoot me an email at morningbrew.com and let me know if you want more modern business case studies, and if you do, let me know what specific companies you would like to see me break down moving forward. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll catch you next episode.